Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming once again. So listen, every week I got all these stories about, you know, bad cops and police abuse and all that. And uh, it's important and I'll continue to do it. I'll continue to do it tonight. Um, but first I want to start with a good cop story. Something perhaps I don't do enough. Uh, before I do that, what's on tap for the evening? Okay. There is a new website uh, coming out soon. And it's very exciting. What's what the site's going to do is it's kind of it's kind of going to be like a, a Yelp for vaping, in that customers, uh, but but not not just for I, I believe just for like e liquid reviews, right? So that's great. That'll be useful. I think it'll be you know if it just did that it would be popular. But what's really interesting is along with anybody being able to go on and post, here's the bottle of whatever I bought and this is what I think of it. They are also, the site is also going to do third-party independent lab testing on liquids that are reviewed on the site and actually post those results right on the site. Amazing. I don't think there is another website that is doing that yet. It's been talked about. Now it's actually going to happen, and I think this is a fantastic idea. We're going to talk to uh, Gareth in just a few moments about his site, how it's going to work, and uh, all the details. Very exciting. After that, I'm going to have Gregory Connolly, president of the American Vaping Association, on to talk about uh, to talk about the recent Safada conference and everything that happened of note. And then I'll have a normal mix of nonsense that I normally do. So let's start with a good cop story, right? So... There's this, um, some sort of a freedom for, uh, you know, religious expression organization in, in Texas, I believe. Boy, should, you know, I should have my facts straight. Where are these people and who are they? They, they, uh, to be honest with you, they kind of look like assholes. They seem, they seem like assholes. Uh, they, um, yeah, they, 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 they had this. Now the contest that they had, I am in full support of. They had a, what is called a, a draw Muhammad contest. I'm all for this. Now, what, what that is, is they, they get a bunch of people together and everybody draws Muhammad. Um, and this is, is this intentionally to incite? Yes, it is. And like I said, I'm all for it. It is a completely peaceful action by some people who otherwise seem to be kind of like nutty assholes. But the event itself is great. Because it illustrates just how ridiculous, um, I, I think all religions are, but in particular Islam and the violent reactions that typically, that, that do happen so often. I mean, shit. In, uh, in France, they had, you know, more than uh, a half a dozen people killed, uh, a half a dozen more seriously injured because the um, newspaper or the magazine, uh, Charlie Hebdo, published uh, some silly pictures of Mohammed on, on the cover and, and elsewhere in the magazine. This has also happened in the past in, um, I believe, Denmark, where they went and they killed a guy because he publishes pictures or, or um, cartoons of Muhammad. Now, this is so supposedly so uh, offensive to, to Muslims because I, I guess somewhere in that stupid book, you're not allowed to draw the prophet, all right? And their reaction to this, or the reaction of some to this, is uh, murder, plain and simple. Now, you know, I wasn't, 
it's 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 crazy to, to to say that I'm not surprised by this, but I'm really not, just because it's happened so many times before. And they were uh, this organization here in uh, in Texas. They were well aware that it is likely that people respond in a, in a, in a violent way to this. They had they spent forty thousand dollars in security, armed security. They had a uh, local police were aware of it and were tracking it. And, you know, some people actually sent out some tweets just before saying that they're going to go there and they're going to kill people. Well, guess what? They, they tried really hard to. Two guys armed with, um, you know, if you read the media, uh, they, they will, the media will say they, they went with assault rifles. There's no such fucking thing as an assault rifle. They went with those, it was probably AR, AR-15s, you know, semi-automatic um fairly powerful rifles, right? So they go there and they open fire. Um, they couldn't get into the event uh, because there was so much armed security, but they did uh, open fire on at least one security guard because at least one security one security guard did get hit. He got shot in the ankle. So now what I'd like to do is... Um, you see, they haven't. I, I I understand why they haven't released the name of the police officer, but whoever you are, officer, who used the service pistol to kill these two assholes, I would like to say thank you, officer. Nice fucking shot, man. Good shooting, sir. Here's the news article about it. You know, so I I I, I look to see, you know, who are these assholes who got shot? Um. The, the <laughs> one of them, his name was Elton Simpson. I was expecting a name slightly harder to pronounce. <laughs> Elton Simpson wasn't that wasn't that the name of the grandpa in the Simpsons? Wasn't his name Elton Simpson or something like that? He's some nut job. He, you know, the FBI was onto this guy. Actually, they. Uh, they, uh, I think he did a small amount of jail time. They, they investigated him in, in 2006 because he was trying to set up a, a terrorist cell. Listen, I don't know what color his skin is. It doesn't really matter. Uh, that's the beautiful thing, or the, in this case, the ugly thing about religion. It doesn't, doesn't really, uh, doesn't follow any color boundaries. Anyway, um, so he's some whack job, and uh, the person he was living with, I uh, forget their, that, it doesn't matter, slightly harder to pronounce name, but anyway, two fucking whack jobs, violent assholes, upset over cartoons, are dead thanks to the excellent marksmanship of a Texas police officer. Hats off to you, sir. I talk about all the people who die every year in America at the hands of police. Here's two more, and thank God for that. Welcome to the show. Let's get it on. Hey now, everybody. Yes, I'm going down. 
you know, let me add one thing to that. Uh, thank you, Non-Toxic Vapor, for, for posting in the chat and re- reminding me. You're right. Most of the Muslims in Texas, uh, they actually uh, organized, I suppose, on social media to simply ignore the event. Um, so not even just peacefully protest it, but just completely ignore it, which, you know, if everybody did that, nobody would bother drawing Muhammad anymore because <laughs> what's the point, you know? So yes, uh, most are are uh, are peaceful, but um, if you look back through history, when you have a philosophical movement, um, many times the peaceful majority is irrelevant. So let's start with our first topic. I want to bring on. Gareth, who is starting this exciting new website that's going to be publishing third-party independent lab testing of e-liquid uh, for uh, dictones like uh, diacetyl and acetylpropanol, as, as well as uh, allowing vapors to post their own uh, subjective experience and reviews of, of, the, uh, of the e-liquids that they have bought. Let's bring them on. Gareth, can you hear me, sir? I can, Russ. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. All right. So I was so excited when you first contacted me and told me about this new website that you have coming. Uh, the reviews sound pretty cool, and we can maybe talk about that a little bit first, how it's going to work. But the really exciting thing, I don't know of a site who is, you know, I know of e-liquid companies that do testing on their own liquid, and they post that stuff on, uh, you know, on on their own website, and that's great. But, you, you know, you're... This is a site that doesn't sell e-liquid, is the best of my knowledge, and is doing third-party independent testing, and you can talk about that in a bit. Let's start with the, you know, the part that seems like, uh, I don't know, like a like a Yelp site where people have an experience with a product and then they can post reviews on it. How, how will that work? Sure, yeah, happy to. Uh, but first, I, I do want to point out, and I, I think I did might have mentioned this in my initial uh, message out to you, that it was actually your show, your follow-up on the Daikitones that kind of uh, was the fuel to the fire that, that spurred this. So, you know, thank you to you for putting this out there in the, in the public eye. And that's why uh, I, you're the first person I contacted when I, uh, you know, actually brought this to fruition. Oh, so, well, hey, I, I'm glad for, that, for I'm, that. I'm, I'm glad that happened. I mean, all I do is talk in a microphone uh, to actually take the initiative to make a website is uh, quite a bit more effort. So hats off uh, to you, but I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> good. <laughs> so, so how does the review part work? Yeah, no, fair enough. Right. So the review part is going to work uh, very similarly to Yelp. You know, you'll be able to go into the site and find any uh, any e-liquid that you have tried in the past uh, that has agreed to a partnership with the website. So, you know, that's going to be the first uh, thing, of course, that the manufacturer wants to be listed on our site. And uh, assuming, of course, that they are, then any user uh, can log into the site and then just leave a review and it'll be a one to five star or you know, s- similar rating, and then you'll have the ability to you know, write a little blurb about uh, your exact experience and why you give that the uh, result or the, the rating that you're giving it. So let's say I want to go on the site and not, I, I don't want to write a review. I just, you know, I'm in the market for like a, I don't know, for like a strawberry custard, whatever kind of e-liquid. Um, and I want to, I want it in a specific PG, VG ratio uh, how will the site help me do that? Is there filtering like there is on Yelp? Exactly. Uh, and, and that's kind of the exciting thing that I think. You know, I don't use Yelp 
particularly for writing reviews. I very rarely write a review. The thing I really enjoy Yelp for is, is the uh, search engine that it's created so that when I'm in a city that I'm unfamiliar with, I can just type in uh, sushi and, and I get the you know, closest sushi restaurants to me. And then I can decide where I'm going to go based on uh, uh, third-party reviews of those, right? That's, that's what I personally use Yelp for. Yeah, me too. That's the yeah. thing I'm most excited about, yeah. So, and that's, and that's what I think is going to be the most valuable thing about this app, that you'll be able to go in, or I say app, but initially it will just be a website, um, but you'll be able to go in, <laughs> sushi-flavored juice <laughs> in the comments. No, not sushi-flavored juice. Um, but yeah, you'll be able to go into this website and just type in, you know, a flavor like you suggested. I could just type in strawberry and I will get a list of all of the different manufacturers or manufactured flavors that are out there that contain strawberry notes. Um, and also, as you alluded to, I, you, the user will also be able to say, uh, I want this particular PG-VG ratio, or um, more importantly, perhaps, I, I vape a certain nicotine level. I want to make sure that my search results are filtered by that nicotine level. So you can put in all of that information, and, uh, and that comes right back. Now, you mentioned how useful Yelp is for, you know, finding location-based businesses, you know, so I'm, you know, Yelp knows you're standing right here on this corner and you type in sushi and you can see all the restaurants. Will this site have a similar function for brick and mortars? Not initially on the brick and mortar element. And, and actually, you know, we've been pitching this idea to people within the vaping community now for a couple of months. And uh, one of the things that keeps coming back from the shops in particular is, uh, you know, how does this affect our business? And so initially, uh, no, there won't be a direct link into the actual vape shops. So, you know, you won't be able to go into the app and it will tell you, it will not tell you, oh, you can buy that liquid here. So the, the strong functionality of the app is not necessarily to direct you to where you can buy the e-liquid, uh, more to educate you about the e-liquids that are on the market. Understood. Okay. Well, maybe a day two kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing a, a further version of that, but yeah, it's not in the initial launch. I mean, yeah, and it's, you know, Yelp does that already actually really, really well. If you get, just go onto Yelp and type, you know, vape shop, you can find any vape shops that are near you. It's very good at that. It's uh, unlikely that they'd miss any, uh, although it's possible. So, you know, that functionality is already out there, but certainly Yelp isn't categorizing, you know, individual e-liquids. They don't do that at all. They just do, you know, brick and mortars. So it's... You know, it's functionality that, is, is, to the best right. of my knowledge, especially with the filtering and everything that you have, it's functionality that just doesn't exist right now. Um, so there, there's right. that. I think the thing that... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you. I was just going to say, I think that the way that the stores are really going to benefit from this app is uh, they will have the... Uh, you know, right now the industry is so inundated with marketing efforts from the manufacturing companies, and they don't necessarily correlate to good flavors. And so you find a lot of flavors on shelves that may or may not be um, the best flavors out there for vapors or in the opinion of vapors, but they sell well because they're marketed well. And I think with a site like this, the shops are really going to benefit because they'll be able to see the, the true nuts and bolts, like what flavors do people really want to taste. Yeah, good point. So so, so there's... That's, that's my dream for it. There's that now. And just so I fully understand it, like... What I'm unclear about is like, let's say I just want to, I bought this, this liquid that I really, really like, and I want to go and write a review on it. 
can I just do that? Mm -hmm. Or does it have to, or does the, the manufacturer like of the liquids have to opt in first or can anybody just write a review on anything? How does that work? So there will only be, you can only write reviews or search for liquids that are, that the manufacturer has opted in to be a part of a partner with the site. So initially, you know, we'll launch with uh, what we're projecting to be a good 20 to 25 uh, e-liquid manufacturers while we're in beta testing. And then once we've worked the kinks out, we'll open those doors and say, hey, all e-liquid manufacturers, of which there are hundreds, if not even thousands in the U.S. alone, um, would be able to come in and say, hey, yeah, you know, that's great. We, we have flavors. We think that they're going to, you know, stand out well. And this provides the manufacturers another way to market their product and, uh, and you know, be known for what we hope is good flavors. Okay, understood. Uh, obviously, well, not obviously, I would assume there's no cost to uh, to to vapors to users of the site, but if uh, if have you That's worked right. have you worked out the details on you know once you open it up to everybody, uh, I mean all the e liquid manufacturers do do they have to pay to have their 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 liquids listed on your site? No, I I don't think that we're going to go that route. We have a couple of different revenue options for us in terms of you know building our business model. And I think we're going to shy away from that one in particular. Uh, as far as, you know, getting your e-liquid from a manufacturer's perspective, getting their e-liquid on the site, I don't think that there will be a charge for that. What we do expect uh, charging for is, you know, similarly to what Yelp does right now, the first couple of reviews or, you know, you search something, the first couple that pop up are typically paid for ads. Right. And Yelp is collecting five cents or whatever each time that, field auto-populates with, you know, whatever company has said they are willing to pay for that advertising. So that's uh, that's an option for us. Oh, okay, We're understood. We're going to go in that direction. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the exciting portion of it where in addition to users being able to search for liquids based on ratios and nicotine and uh, flavor flavors and all that other stuff, they'll also be able to see if... Uh, if a, a particular e-liquid manufacturer has done, has well, you would do actually the third-party testing. If third-party testing has been completed, which which I guess is going to be done by you, uh, by your company, uh, they're going to be able to see the certification from a laboratory that has tested the liquids and what the results are, you know, particularly for uh, diketones and, and other things like that. Uh, how does that work? Exactly. So that's going to be phase two of the project. And the way that's going to work is uh, those companies that are doing the correct thing uh, and either, I, I guess there are, there are multiple camps within the e-liquid manufacturers. You have the large companies, and I believe it was uh, Mount Baker Vapor that you interviewed um, some time ago when the Daikitone scandal really kind of exploded. No, actually, it wasn't Mount Baker Vapor. It was actually Baker White. Oh, Baker White. Okay, forgive me. Uh, and they had, they had talked about the fact that they had pulled particular flavors from uh, manufacturing because they were not able to get them diketone free. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So essentially, you know, we're looking to companies like them uh, who are doing things the right way and and making sure that the liquids that they're putting out in the community are free of these, you know, potentially hazardous or hazardous um, chemicals. And uh, so we're going to give them the option to opt in to a third-party testing, which we will then purchase their 
e-liquids um, through their site and ship them off to the lab and then post those results on the site, on our, on our website, so that users can rest assured that they are getting diketone-free uh, vapor. So that is going to be just an additional filter that we are electing to add in. And it's, again, it's going to be an opt-in thing for the e-liquid manufacturers. So if an e-liquid manufacturer doesn't want to go that route, they're not going to be forced to. Uh, it's just going to be an additional way that some ca- uh, companies will be able to stand uh, above the, the rest. See, what, what, what I envision happening for something like this, I, I think this, you know, the market's going to decide, obviously, you know, whether or not vapors as a, a, the majority of vapors, I, I guess I should say, or, or a large group of vapors, whether or not they actually want this kind of product, uh, a diketone-free product, something that doesn't have um, diacetyl or acetylpropanol, whether or not this is actually mm-hmm. something that consumers really want, that really think, or uh, whether or not they think it's important, I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. I think it's early days. I think there are, if for no other reason, that most vapors simply aren't even aware of the issue right now. But it's growing, and companies are responding. In fact, the company you brought up, Baker White, they actually have now in their marketing for their latest product they actually have as a part of the marketing where it tells you this is what it tastes like you know here's the you know what here's the logo for it and everything um on the other side of the paper they got the lab results right there so they're incorporating it into the marketing and that's essentially what your site is doing it's a site that allows e-liquid companies to promote their product and you're giving them this option for the third-party testing and that is essentially marketing um, it's marketing that they're doing something good and whether or not vapors really want it, I, I don't know. I think it'll be, you're going to have some good data actually. Um, you'll probably be the first site that's going to have, you know, data from, you know, com- people coming and searching. You're, you'll know probably exactly how often they're using that filter for, uh, for diketone free products. And that'll be really interesting. Maybe one day, you know, I'll, I'll probably have you on right before your site launches. Cause I know it's still under development. And it'll probably be live sometime in the in the summer. But I'll certainly have you on, and I, I'd definitely like to follow up with you to get some data on that. How 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 important is it? I mean, you're going to know better than anybody. Yeah, that's going to be uh, I think one of the most revealing things about it. Um, just being able to you know collect that data, like you said, and to really get a, an aggregate picture of what the market is doing and and what the market wants is going to be invaluable to all manufacturers, you know, uh, outside of even just the diketones, um, you know, knowing what the most popular flavors are in particular regions or knowing what, uh, what PGVG ratios are most searched for could be really valuable. Now I get, I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of emails and it's about this, this subject because I don't know, I, I've been talking about it so often, I suppose. And the, the, the number one email about the subject I get is, Russ, what do I buy? What, what, should, what can I buy that's, that's free of uh, di, um, diacetyl and acetylpropanol? And it's a hard question to mm-hmm. answer because all I can do, you know, I've got some, some companies out there I, that are doing the right thing that I trust and everything, but it's like it's almost irresponsible for me to, to put together a partial list that I think is true. Do, do, do I trust that, that Baker White, that Niquid, that Mountain Oak Vapors are doing the testing? Yeah, I trust, I, I trust them 100%. Um, but at the end of the day, 
it's not, you know, third party, it's not a third party organization. Again, I believe them and I buy those products, but it's not third party testing. That's the gold seal. That's, that's the gold standard, right. I should say. So what I, I kind of think right. what's yeah, gonna, exactly. I, I, what I kind of think is going to happen with your site, since this is like a prominent feature that you're going to be offering is I, I think it's going to kind of be, you're going to, your site's going to be the answer to that question. Now I can give it with, with, with confidence. I should go here, do a search, do a filter. And I kind of think that the, the I think you're going to have a hard time uh, attracting companies that don't do this kind of testing themselves, because why would they want to be listed on the site where they don't show up on that important filter? It kind of, I mean, maybe they will, but, and maybe it'll encourage them to say, well, okay, go ahead. You know, we haven't, I don't know. I don't, I don't see them wanting to have their liquids tested by you if they haven't done it themselves. I, I kind of feel like the whole site is really going to attract the e-liquid manufacturers that are doing due diligence. I think those are the only people that are really going to want to be on your site. And, um, hey, maybe that's good enough. Hopefully there are enough of these companies out there that are doing this that I don't know about, and they'll all flock to you. I, I think you're going to have a hard time without mentioning any specific manufacturer's names. I, I, I can think of a few that wouldn't want to be, <laughs> that, that specifically would not want to have anything to do with your site because they they full well know what the hell's in the in, in the liquid, and they're not going to want to have somebody third-party test it. Why would they do that? They know it's fucking dirty. No, yeah, I totally agree. But, you know, here's the thing. If this, if this is successful in becoming the standard for the way that people, you know, search for e-liquids, uh, which it, it could, you know, quite possibly become just based on, you know, diketone filter left, you know, withstanding, uh, just looking at the other filtration process, uh, there's, I don't really know of anything else that exists right now that allows you to filter through lists of e-liquids to find, uh, to find, you know, a, a short list of, things that of liquids that match your particular search criteria. Right. So if this is, is successful in becoming uh, a new standard uh, a way of, for vapors to become connected to the, manu the manufacturers that are available out there, then I think that it's going to be kind of obvious at a certain point when certain supposedly you know, excellent manufacturers that have opted out of partnering uh, you know, or just essentially refuse to sign up. Um, I think that that's going to be very telling to the market. Well, this is certainly an example of how uh, a market-based innovation can not only not only deliver the kind of information the customers want, but actually drive awareness of an issue. Uh, because a lot of people, maybe people go to the site, they just want to search for something and maybe they've never heard of this and they see this filter and they don't know what the heck it is. And I'm sure you'll have something that explains it, but it, it, it can do, it, it can't help but not spread awareness of this issue and that there are uh, vendors that are out there that are taking it very seriously and doing the science needed to make uh, the products free of these chemicals. Um, so that's great. Um I wish you the best of luck. Okay, so tell us a little bit more. Um, obviously, it's under development now. Um, do you want to? Uh, do Do you want me to? Uh, it has a placeholder now. Um, is that going to be the name of the site? Uh, no, no, no. This placeholder is just the, the. I think you're talking about the link I sent to you a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, that is just our uh, landing page with our opt-in at the bottom. 
So if you wouldn't mind posting that, that'd be great. And then if anybody uh, is interested in, in signing up, uh, you know, when we do go into beta testing, we're going to appeal to anyone who's opted in and, you know, extend an invitation to uh, participate in the beta test. So yeah, if you'd like to post that, that'd be fantastic. I will. And I'll include it in the, in the replay notes also. Um, we do have a phone call. Let's, uh, let's take it. Uh, caller in the 408 area code. You're on the air. Yeah. Hi, this is Ed Wolf. Uh, I really like the idea of this site. Uh, I mean, it's actually pretty exciting, frankly. Uh, but I'm wondering about how, you know, when you're saying third-party testing, more or less everything that's being tested by N3 Labs and whoever uh, those other, that's third-party testing already. Uh, what, it, what it is not is necessarily a third-party collection of the e-liquids. So since there's so much data out there that has been independently tested by these manufacturers, I would, would hope that you wouldn't just put the information that you independently generate as testing as what's available on the website, that you would actually include all of their data that they have already. And then one way to deal with that is to uh, possibly have a membership fee that would do a independent collection of their e-liquids uh, and then test it to make sure that it does conform to this, the results that they've already provided. Because I know that there's multiple vendors out there that have done large amounts of testing. I believe one is uh, Nick Vape or it's Nickwid. I guess they get the two confused, but they've posted their testing results for about 25 different e-liquids. And there's other other people that have already done all that. I think uh, Mountain Oak Vapors also has that information. So there's just a ton of testing data that's out there that has been independently done. It's just not been independently collected, but there is a custody that's usually presented on the on the forms hey. so will you be including all, that mass of information and then double checking it by a randomized uh not randomized but essentially a sting test um gareth i'm gonna let you answer that but before you do ed what i'm gonna say to you is i mean i'm, I'm surprised you haven't thought of this i mean yes people are doing that and it's good of, of course but any company can go and generate a piece of paper and say, you know, we've been tested by, you know, maybe it's a lab you haven't heard of. Maybe that's happened already. Uh, I don't know how good your memory is. And, you no, know, that, that's, that, that, is, that, that has convinced many a customer that, hey, these results are, are, are legitimate. The purpose of having a, of having a third party being a, a completely different, you know, group of people who are not the manufacturer going out and testing is that it removes the, the the potential of, of fraudulent uh, tests that may have already been out there already. Um, that's just my two cents, yeah, but I'll but, let I'll I'll let you address. Yeah, but wait a second. That's that's I think that's really speculative because if they are going to forge a test data like that that can be actually verified the other way, that's going to you know be a huge legal liability to them. Yeah. It's one thing to be selling something with uh, with diacetyl in it. Uh, diacetyl in it, and then not knowing, or it's another thing to forge a document, then have it easily be able to be proved the other way, and then somebody saying, "Here, here's who we want to." Yeah, prove. but Ed, so what you're, what I you're... don't think that the, I don't think the level of fraud out there is as significant a chance as that you're presenting. I'm not presenting to be a high chance, but it's already happened, and we know what the results are. That the the customers of that company believe the owner, not me. But anyway, that that's not what this is about. Um, that that's 
that's that's a conclusion. I, I don't think I think there's a lot of people that are, are looking at that the other way around too. I mean, it's it's that's just one example, and I don't think it's a great example. I don't think that most people are going to expose themselves to the liability by putting out fraudulent tests, especially because it could be uh, verified. And that's essentially what I'm saying is that there's a whole mass of tests out there, and it would be good if this website instead of trying to only put out the ones that are independently collected and independently tested, but to take the data from the manufacturers and then on a random basis verify those. Okay, well... be part of their inclusion of the site. Well, I, I, hi, I hijacked uh, Gareth from uh, answering the question, which I now regret, so I'll go ahead and let you do that. <laughs> hey, no problem. And uh, thanks thanks for the, uh, the interest that you uh, said there, Ed. Um, yeah, I definitely understand your perspective. The, the frustration or the fear that I have in terms of using data that's been put into... Um, you know, put into the media in one way or another without doing it ourselves is that I, I put the reputation of the company at risk. And so even if there's a small chance that, you know, some of the data that I'm, you know, putting out there is in fact fraudulent, uh, and then that comes to light, then, then the whole thing is kind of a bust. And so I, I think I would prefer to reach out to those companies that already have that data available and just say, hey, we understand that you have this data available. Would you mind if we verify it ourselves by, and, and you know, we're going to be using the same labs that they do, right? We're not talking about any cloak and dagger or anything. We're, we're you know, the only, the, the important part about us doing it rather than the manufacturer claiming it though, is just that, you know, we don't have a vested interest in the results. We're just going to post either, yes, it came back green light or, Maybe you want to uh, take a look at this before we post it. Yeah, but the, I, how are you going to be able to deal with the cost of that? I mean, companies themselves are struggling with the cost of doing it. How, how on earth would your site uh, with click pay revenue even come close to being able to test very many of them? It's, it's only going to be uh, something that companies will opt into. So in, in reference to uh, the diketones, it's going to be something that a company – pays for essentially. So they will say, look, we've got these five flavors. We already know that they're diketone free and uh, we'd like to have them filtered as such on your site. And so here is the 220 or 230 bucks per flavor to have them tested. And then they get that stamp of approval. And if that turns out to be something that the manufacturers don't care about and they won't, they're not willing to pay for, then that's just fine. Um, but I think that the manufacturers that have already taken all of these important steps to put that into play in the first place, I think that those folks will uh, see the value in, in being able to stand, stand above the crowd in, in this regard. Do you have some that have already said that they're willing to do that? I have uh, many manufacturers that I've spoken with that are excited and want to be a part of the beta test. Uh, in reference to the diketones, no, we haven't uh, even unleashed that. This is actually the first time we're talking about that uh, here is on the show right now. Okay, let me, just, let me just say this, just a design uh, suggestion, is that you mm -hmm. take all of the data that the manufacturers are willing to give you as far as independent testing that they've done on their products, and that you have that on your site as information that people can search. And then if they're going to be part of your site is then to do a statistical independent sampling of their products. So if they have, say, 10 products, if you test two of them that are, are, are uh, 
that, that co- correspond to what their, their published data already says, that's a pretty good statistical sample showing that it's a good, clean company. Because if a company has done like 30 of them and they've done all the testing, then they would have to pay you 30 times to do it. Um, mm-hmm. to, to, to do it. So if you were just to sample them randomly, they're going to get caught if they're fudging the data. And that way you'll have a lot of mass of information. And then, you know, you're basically doing a, a sampling check uh, rather than trying to duplicate everything they've already done. No, that that's, really good. that's a really good point. That makes sense. Okay, thanks. Obviously, we, we don't want it to be cost prohibitive to the manufacturers. Uh, and we, we instead want to reward those that have taken these extra steps. So that makes a lot of sense, Ed. Thanks for that. Okay, thanks. And uh, th- yeah, thanks for calling in. Good, uh, good call. Good question. I actually, uh, when I talked to Gareth before, um, uh, b- before the interview, it was the first question. Uh, my question was the first question that you just asked, Ed. Uh, I said, "How the hell are you going to pay for this?" Um, and that's a good way. You have the, <laughs> you, you, you know, it's uh, you have the manufacturer, you have the manufacturers themselves paying for it. If they're already doing it, they do it one more time and get, you know, awesome exposure for it. So that's. Uh, that's the answer, and it's a fantastic free market solution to uh, to have. You know, because when all this broke initially, that's what every everybody was saying. There needs to be a site where people can can list all this stuff, and then you know, finally everyone, you know, it kind of like dawned on everybody. Well, well who's going to pay for that? You know, it's it's so it's you know, th- there's no way you could support through advertising. You know, you know, cl- click stuff on the on the site to to pay for the you know you know two hundred bucks a pop for every time something needs to be tested. But now here's a way. Here's a free market innovation that allows for just that. Uh, it's fantastic, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, Russ, and it, it kind of brings back to something you'd said earlier about the free market innovation. And I think it really comes down to this. I mean, either we within our industry continue to self-regulate by free market innovation and ideas like this, or we wait until regulation comes down from the government. And I think anyone who's ever been to the post office would agree with me that a little free market innovation will beat that any day. <laughs> Amen. So, 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 so listen, <laughs> so l- l- like you said, um, you've, uh, this is the first time you've ever publicly came out and said, Hey, we're having this third party, um, uh, diacetyl and acetylpropanol as, as well as maybe other stuff tested, uh, for people who are going to be on for e-liquid manufacturers that are going to be on the site. So this is the first time that anyone could have possibly heard about it. I Mm -hmm. know that there's a lot of e-liquid manufacturers that listen to the show who may be either terrified or very enthusiastic and very excited about this opportunity. How do they get a hold of you? Right. So, oh gosh, that's a good question. I can leave my email address if you'd like. Perfect. Um, I didn't really think that went all the way through because the only other option is that they opt in and there's no way that I could contact them through that. Um, well, yeah, you, you, you need, you need there, to get so. your email out there, sir. Yeah. Fantastic. Should I just post it in the uh, communication here? We'll say it out loud, uh, post it in the chat and I'll include it in the, e- in the, uh, in the replay notes. Sure. That's uh, Gareth. My first name is spelled G A R E T H at Steam Labs Vapor, that's S-T-E-A-M-L-A-B-S-V-A-P-O-R.com. Fantastic. G-A-R-E-T-H, G-A-R-E-T-H, at SteamLabsVapor.com. I hope your, uh, in, in your inbox is overflowing. Um, uh, best of luck, and <laughs> I will have you on, um, you, know, ba- you know, hopefully just before or just after 
the site actually launches to the public, which, uh, like you said, will hopefully be in a month or so. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Russ. Thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for everything you do for our community. No, thank you, sir. All right. Take care, man. All right. Cheers. There he goes, everybody. Gareth, I am excited about that. Awesome. Okay. Um, let me... Hey, perfect timing. It's 10.02. So let me call... Uh, let me call Greg. Just play this bumper here. So what I'd like to do now is bring on the president of the American Vaping Association, uh, Gregory Connolly, who you all know and love, has uh, been at the most recent Safada conference, and I'd like for him to come on and talk about his experience there. Are you there, Greg? Yes, I am. I'm in the hotel gym at the moment. I completely forgot that Chicago was not in uh, your time zone, <laughs> but we're good to talk now. Okay, good. Um, have fun on the wrong machine. Um, so. Tell us about the conference. Uh, for those that don't know, what was the scope of it, some of the noteworthy guests, and uh, what was accomplished, and, and, and what did we learn? Sure. I thought it was an excellent conference. Safada put on their first one last year, um, and it was very well attended in Chicago. This one was in Evanston, about 30 minutes outside of Chicago. And the special guest, the keynote speaker, was our good friend Mitch Zeller of the FDA Center for Tobacco Products. Uh, it was kind of a, uh, it was the first ever vapor event that Mr. Zeller had ever been to. Uh, I'll discuss his talk in a second, but we also had uh, a great state panel featuring myself, uh, Pamela Gorman and Brian Foytick of Enjoy, uh, Julie Westner of CASA, and Tony Abood, who does some strategic communications for Safada. I thought that went very well. Um, Mark Daniel Walsh of Tobacco did a very good presentation on kind of uh, regulations in general. There were some interesting uh, presentations on the technical aspects of the industry. There were some lawyers that came and talked about uh, the deeming regulation, potential options. Uh, Bill Godshaw gave a talk on what he called stopping the FDA deeming ban, which is an appropriate way to put it. Um, at the end of the day, today we had a kind of a private meeting of all the Safada chapter members that were in attendance to kind of go over messaging and fundraising and all sorts of different things. And uh, in general, just a very fun two-day conference with lots of very good people that I have a lot of respect for here. What kind of a building was it in? It is at the Hilton in uh, Evanston. Nice building. 
Not so, too bad, not too expensive. So I assume like a big conference room kind of thing or dining type area, something like that? Yeah, the, the conference portion was in a very large conference room. I would have to say, so I will have the official numbers, but I have to guess that there were at least 150 people in attendance, if not a few more. Okay, so 100... And the, and the room was actually... The room was actually at capacity, so they couldn't. They really couldn't, unless one of the walls, the the folding walls, actually came down. Uh, they actually would not be able to have taken anyone else. See, the reason why I ask that is because invariably at vaping gatherings, there is this huge haze of vapor that sometimes causes suffocation of the event. Sometimes it's it's. You, you, you can't even stand up now. Now you're saying there was a, you know, 150 or so people there. And oh, I suppose the crowd that was drawn is typically more considerate and thoughtful than the typical neckbeard attendance of a vapor convention. But I'm still curious. You've yeah, got not many neckbeards, but I will say that Evanston before Chicago passed their ban, unfortunately, Evanston, which is kind of a yuppie neighborhood suburb of Chicago, they indeed passed their own ban. Um, and I believe the county did as well uh, soon after. And so, officially, there was absolutely no vaping going on in the conference, in the hotel, in the bar. Uh, the people that are here would never violate the law by holding their breath for several seconds while taking inhales. Um, and if you accuse us of doing so, that's uh, slander. Let's not forget, this man is a lawyer. Okay, so um, yeah. no, because because really, the, what I was getting at was like I I really wanted I was curious. Like you got Mitch Zeller there, and I'm picturing him in this uh, room where it's got you know six feet of vapor from the ceiling down. But uh, apparently, that didn't happen. So hopefully, that experience was no. Was there spare. was no haze, and he attended. There was no haze, and he attended NATO uh, and spoke a couple weeks ago. And I assume that if you walk the convention floor, since it was in Vegas, that vaping was certainly permitted. Uh, I would have liked to see that, but unfortunately I wasn't able to make it out for that one. So one of the um, presentations that you mentioned sounded pretty interesting. You said that Bill Godshaw had a talk about how we can stop the FDA deeming regulations. Now, um, to the you know to the best of my limited knowledge, I always thought that really the only avenue available was legal. Um, I, I don't know of a way where, you know, you can, I mean, you should call your representatives and, and tell them that, you know, vaping isn't the demon that, that the that the media and, and several governments are making it out to be. But I don't know of an option to stop deeming besides legal. What did he talk about? Well, there are two things. Uh, once the FDA actually sends the final deeming regulation to the Office of Management and Budget at the White House, it is important that every advocacy group, every legitimate person that has a business in this industry, um, even consumers that uh, have their lives on the line, should fly down to D.C. and make an appointment to meet with OMB. And generally, before the DME reg came out, the proposal, they met with a lot of people. I'm hopeful that they will continue that and meet with tons of people during the uh, approximately two months that they will uh, have the regulation in front of them. And they need to know that the regulation uh, would ban 99% plus of vapor products, that the economic analysis 
does the uh, piss-poor job of estimating the number of products on the market and thus underestimates the economic impact of this regulation. Um, so that's one option, to try and convince OMB, who cares a lot about economics, who cares a lot about small business, that this is terrible for public health, terrible for jobs. And then the second option is our goal uh, bill in the House that now has, I think, four co-sponsors that just got introduced last week, H.R. 2058. And that bill would essentially uh, move the grandfather date to the date of the final issuance of the regulation. So in other words, that would save the industry. It would make bringing new products to the market still very difficult, but all pre, let's say, August 30th, 2015 products would be able to stay on the market just by filing, uh, I'm not sure exactly what, maybe a, a pre-substantial equivalence application of some sort, but it would not be a $1 million to $20 million pre-market uh, review of tobacco products, new tobacco products application. And so that's going to be the big thing for the vapor community. Uh, and this could take certainly more than a year to pass. It could be, uh, it, we could go a year into the, uh, with that, that two-year window that we have before the regulation takes effect uh, once it's issued. Um, it can take a while to get this passed, but it is very important, especially, you're a little out of luck. You're, you're represented in the Congress, surely, by a liberal Democrat that probably will not sign on to this bill. But all across the country, the House is dominated by Republicans. And hell, we don't have a Senate bill yet, but the Senate is dominated by Republicans. And we need more co-sponsors. States that are prime areas or uh, counties that are prime areas for vaping, like Darrell Isa in Orange County, probably with 300 vape stores in his district. All the Republicans that represent Oklahoma with all their vape businesses. Uh, all these different states. We have to activate consumers and activate businesses to deliver phone calls and for businesses to have meetings with their reps, whether in their district or flying to D.C., um, because we need to load that bill up with co-sponsors. I mean, the bill to exempt premium cigars from FDA regulation, I'm fairly certain that thing had like 70-plus co-sponsors at one point. So if we should be able to get more than that, considering uh, that there are certainly more jobs on the line with this than there is with the premium cigar industry. Might, so that's a big deal. Might, yes. might I suggest that if you do, and I think you should, uh, propose some sort of a sister bill in the Senate, uh, please do uh, contact Senator Rand Paul. Uh, I'd be interested uh, to hear what I, I would think he'd be uh, thrilled to co-sponsor something like that, but I don't know. But he, he's certainly... Uh, He's certainly the most libertarian-leaning member of the Senate, and uh, quite a big name. And yeah, we just, want him to co. We want him to co-sponsor, but I mean, we want Lamar Alexander or Richard Burr, who are the two senior members of the Senate Health Committee: Health, Energy, Labor, and something or another. Um, pensions, perhaps. Um, they need to be the ones sponsoring it because they're the ones that can decide to hold a committee hearing on it and pass it out. Um, and so I'm glad we have Dimitri in Tennessee because I think if we, uh, I would, I would like to in the next couple of weeks, uh, work with some people to make some generic materials where people, where senators phone numbers 
can be inserted in depending on the state and the representative's phone numbers depending on the area of the store um, to drive phone calls from real-life consumers and then have Dimitri in Tennessee. And there is a new Safada chapter in North Carolina that's getting going. And then we have some, some big businesses uh, in North Carolina like Mad Vapes and there are a couple chains that I know of that have eight stores or more. Uh, so they need to get in with Richard Burr. And the good news uh, is that, as far as I know, Altry and Reynolds do support moving the grandfather date because even they recognize that the FDA could decide, could, could pull views in Mark 10 off the market, or views, I know, is coming out with flavors at some point. They could decide that none of views is flavors are allowed. Or Mark 10, they have green smoke, which has plenty of flavors and I'm sure isn't generating that much profit or enough profit to justify uh, several million dollars per application, per flavor, per nicotine strength. So they're in support, but their support is not going to be enough. It's going to need to be the consumers being activated as well as the small business owners. Well, it sounds like that's something that can start right now or, or yesterday for that matter you've got this but i'll what i'll do is for the for the replay notes i'll just search i'm sure it won't be too hard to find um hr 2058 there should be a link to it somewhere right and i and i can you know let's encourage people right now that uh you could take that link and contact your representatives in the house and ask them for your for uh, for their support uh the, i assume if i do a google search on that it'll come up somewhere yeah, it should be the first thing that pops up. And we need people uh, not only to do that, but to get their friends and family to call and to really hammer home to their local vape shops. Because unfortunately, I wish that there were, even though we would have needed a larger room, I wish that there were 300 different companies represented here, and there should have been. But you have a lot of vendors out there that you say the word deeming to them, and they think you said demon. Yeah. which is a joke that Mitch Zeller told. I believe it was Mitch. Um, and you say that the FDA regulation is going to ban 99% of products, and they say, oh, that's crazy. That's not true. I'll be fine. My, my liquid's made in, a, in an ISO-certified lab. And that kind of uh, that education needs to happen immediately, that you're wrong and you're not going to be okay. Um, we need to scare people, scare people with legitimate facts, 100% true, and get them to realize that unless they think they can operate their vape shop selling nothing but zero nicotine, and even then, there's going to be state threats to that, and there's going to be U.S. Customs threats to that model, uh, that they either have two years or 28 months, perhaps, to uh, make their money and get out, or they get active and they save their industry and they save their, uh, their small businesses and their bottom line. I'd like to ask you a little bit about what Mitch now Mitch Mitch Zeller this is like you said the first time he was at a vape related event uh speaking at at least that I know of so he got up and he said some stuff I'm 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 interested in what he had to say now I saw you 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 put out a joke on Twitter that said uh you know there's like a drinking game where every time Mitch Zeller says I I can't comment on that you know you take a shot and then you know then you got alcohol poisoning so I I I don't expect anything groundbreaking but what did he say what 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 were his, what were his comments of note i've seen him speak prior to this at 
the SCLI, Food, Drug, and Law Institute Conference on Tobacco, with some of the same people in the audience. Speech was not that different. I was, Bill Gottschall and I were both slightly disappointed that the crowd gave him such a round of applause when he's the one who's set out to destroy this industry. Uh, I certainly only gave a golf clap when he left the stage. Um, and he talked about, does the same old routine, where he talks about the continuum of risk, but he pretty much implies that we don't really, we're not going to recognize the continuum of risk until we've gone through the deeming regulation, which means once 99% of these damn products are banned from the market, then we'll recognize the continuum of risk and maybe put in a different system for these products, uh, which is not the proper solution to send plenty of people back to cigarettes. He did mention something about how he alluded to the possibility of there being some kind of small business uh, exemption or exception put into the law, but that could just be you guys have two and a half years to put in your applications. It's just an extra six months to the, the, the deadline to be banned. Um, I was annoyed because I, you were able to ask questions and you had to write them down on a note card so the moderator could ask it, which is usually a good way of avoiding people going on minute-long monologues about a question. And one of my questions, I specifically wrote it in a way where if Mitch Zeller was honest, he couldn't dodge the question. I wrote down, according to the economic analysis of the proposed deeming regulation, would the proposal ban 99% plus of e-cigarette products on the market? And the answer is yes. There's no confidential information there. The economic analysis, I believe, estimated 10,000 products on the market, which is an underestimation by 10 times or more. And they said that in the first year, they only expect to get 25 PMTA applications. And they didn't even approve all 25. And so that translates into banning 99% plus of products. But Zeller gave the answer that I kind of expected, which was, I can't really talk about that. We're still working on the rule. Uh, but I wasn't asking him about the final rule. I was asking about the proposal. Um, and that bothers me because he's getting pressure from the public health loons who are saying that his deeming regulation doesn't go far enough. And you know it would be a great way to shut them down? To point out, hey, I'm banning 99% of these things. Give me a break. But he won't even do that because he doesn't want to acknowledge that his deeming regulation would ban 99% of products. And I was just discussing over dinner the fact that I had a conversation that was off the record, not at this conference, but a couple months ago, with a journalist with a major magazine. And I brought up to this person, you've written X number of articles about this industry. You've made it part of your weekly thing to write something about us. And you've never written about the deeming regulation and the truth about it. And this person responded back, well, yeah, I understand. I completely know that like, this would ban all these products, but I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think they can do that. And I pointed out to him, like, you want to know what the best way to have the FDA ban 99% of the products is? Have journalists like yourself 
say, oh, I'm not going to cover it because I don't think it's going to happen. And that's exactly what is happening. And so I'm hoping, seeing Mitch speak and seeing him avoid my question, kind of lit a fire under me to hopefully do a couple op-eds. Uh, and I'm going to use Gottschall's term, where it's not the deeming regulation, it's really the deeming ban. A lot of, uh, a lot, I see a lot of discussion on uh, something that you brought up in passing in, in our conversation tonight, and that's regarding ISO certified labs. There are some people out there, uh, I think with their head in the sand, like you have described so many uh, vape shop owners and apparently journalists, where, oh, this just isn't going to happen. But, you know, deeming is really just the first step then additional rules and, and things that you have to do for compliance are going to happen over time. Now, there are people... Additional that, rules don't even matter because... Right. Because everyone's going to be banned. The only way that the additional rules are going to screw over people is if, if that 2015 date, thanks to HR 2058, happens. Then, yes, there will be plenty of problems because this Vital Control Act still, for instance, you won't have any vape shops mixing their own liquid unless it's nicotine-free because they'll be a manufacturer under the Act and there's a whole lot that goes into that. But the industry can still survive. Um, yes. And then there's, of course, the question of future regulation of flavors and Internet sales, et cetera. Um, but, yes, you're, you're right that there is, even if you're under the completely mistaken impression that the deeming regulation itself is not a big deal. There are plenty of things that are going to come along with that and after that that will just further put a stranglehold on this industry. Okay, so I guess let, let's let's just, without creating hypothetical situations, let's just talk about the loophole uh, that you mentioned, which is the zero, uh, the, the zero milligram nicotine loophole that does currently exist. Um, they can't regulate something. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't think they can regulate something unless it has nicotine in it, but... Well, can they? Well, the issue, they certainly can't regulate zero nicotine liquid. But devices, think about what happened six years ago, five years ago, when Customs was operating under orders from FDA that e-cigs were illegal drug delivery devices. Mm -hmm. Even if the devices didn't contain nicotine, they still seized them at the border, held them for several months, probably bankrupted several small young entrepreneurs yes. in the process, and then months later, after some people would have to sometimes file something with courts or, or go through, uh, get a lawyer to, to write the customs, they'd actually get their package released. The same could happen where the FDA points out to the customs, well, e-cigarettes are now regulated by us, so if they, if they don't come with the certificate or whatever it is that says that this is a regulated product, confiscate it. And then you'll have to have another court battle. Because um, the, the FDA regulation gives them power over components and parts. Uh, components and parts, but there's interesting language in there where they say a component or part of a tobacco product. So a component or part of a product made or derived from tobacco. That's certainly not my mod. That's not my tank. And that's certainly not my zero milligram liquid. However, the next chapter in this, if there is, if the FDA actually does not try to clamp down where they lose in court on devices, mods, uh, tanks, etc., is that the states, what you'll have is Reynolds, Altria, maybe Laurelard under their new company Imperial, 
uh, American heart, lung, cancer, etc. And if there are any e-cig companies independently that survive, they're not going to like the competition from the unregulated market. They're going to go to state legislatures and say, these dangerous companies are selling liquid intended to be filled with nicotine. They're avoiding FDA regulation. They're presenting dangers to the public. Blah, blah, blah. They're going to have a bunch of trumped-up studies showing that they're over the non-regulated products, exposed users to trace levels of scary-sounding chemicals, and you'll have state legislatures ban the sale, just like they tried to five, six years ago, ban the sale, instead of banning the sale of any e-cigarette product not approved as a drug, they'll ban the e any e-cigarette product not approved as a drug or not approved as a tackle product. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have questions or comments, please ask them quickly because I, it sounds like Greg is up to seven on the treadmill machine right now, 347-308-8329. We do have a call from the 408 area code. I think this is our friend Ed calling back in again. Do you have a question for uh, for Greg? Yeah, I've got a couple, actually. Uh, first, I want to congratulate uh, you know Greg on what he's been doing. I mean, I've been reading a whole bunch of articles, uh, which has quoted the AVA and himself in there, and so it's really good to see that the whole effort of the AVA uh, is working. Um, so uh, I, I just want to say that, yeah, I just want to say, you know, clearly that I appreciate your efforts uh, and they're working. Uh, I, I did listen to a, one of these interviews that you did on KQED and I tried to tell everybody that I could that it was just a, just a great interview uh, that they did. It was about, it had Leno on at the beginning, then it had you, and then it had uh, an anti anti-vaping guy on, uh, that you were debating. And it was just a, it was just a, a really good uh, briefer on whoever wants to know uh, what the types of fights are. And, and that was posted uh, and, and it's just supposed to be posted. Um, we've got one quick question as far as, uh, do you know what the expectations of the, the cost of the regulation per SKU would be? I mean, I've seen really high numbers and, and, I'm not sure if those are the numbers that people still think they're going to cost for one individual e-liquid. Well, the FDA says estimated $330,000. And Bill Gottschall today threw out that number, and as I wrote on Twitter, he wrote, he said, that's bullshit. Quoting Bill, not myself. I try not to curse. Um, and Bill pointed out that's the equivalent what the FDA deems two-and-a-half full-time employees. That's not true because you have to do all sorts of toxicology, psychology, sociology stuff, all sorts of product analysis. Um, so the real estimate for a Mark 10 or a Views, a cartridge product, is uh, that I've seen that, uh, experts say one to $1.5 million, maybe two. The problem for e-liquid, however, as Altria pointed out in their FDA comment, not maliciously, just pointing it out because it's reality, is that how do you test e-liquid? The FDA, if you, if you were to put out your e-liquid with a 3.7 volt ego that can't be uh, changed, like you can't change the setting, and you do your, all your toxicology testing using just that device, and you submit your application. The FDA can come back and say, yeah, the problem is, is that this can be used in a thousand different devices at a thousand different combinations. 
even though you're selling it alongside an ego, we don't care because we know from our studies that consumers are buying the liquid and using them in various products. So that's why Gottschall says for e-liquid, if the FDA even ever accepts an application, it'll probably be more like 25 million plus. And that's per skew. So if you have a different nicotine level, a different flavor, that's a whole new series of tests. And so that's the big issue. If you move the grandfather date up to 2015, all the products currently available can stay on the market. Uh, and then you just have to, if you want to put a new product, if you want to put a new watermelon flavor out on the market, you just have to do a probably a $100,000, $300,000 application to the FDA pointing out that this product is substantially equivalent to the one on the market before, let's say, August 30th, 2015. Yeah, I think that the grandfather will still be grandfather products would still be re under the requirements of the ingredient listings uh, that they're still going to have to file those, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there'll be other things. Uh, one issue that companies are going to run into in this mythical world where we get the grandfather date moved up is that if you change your flavoring, that's a new product, and you'll have to do a substantial equivalent. So if you some if you run if your flavor manufacturer uh, runs out and you have to use somebody else, or if I don't, I'm not 100% sure if they change their formula, uh, maybe even to make the product safer. That may require a new application. It's very convoluted and it's hard um, to apply that to the e-liquid world where it's just been in the cigarette tobacco world uh, and smokeless tobacco for the past five years. All right. Uh, another question uh, is on the hardware, and this is something I, that I've talked about before. And actually, uh, in Washington at the workshop, I actually was able to get in the face of uh, Mitch Zeller and ask him about this as well. Uh, it's that the, the the deeming says that if it does not have nicotine in it, uh, components, that they will not. It's not subject to the act, and they have not even gone as far as studying the cost implications. And then it goes further that if they were going to propose that, they would have to ask for a new comment period. And similarly, the deeming says that for flavors. So uh, I'm not sure how on earth they could possibly uh, try and regulate, and I'll just use the example of a ProVary and a ProTank, uh, with the, uh, when they're independently sold and without nicotine. Are, are you well, it's been a couple of months, but um, it's... It's been a couple of months, but I'm fairly certain that the deeming regulation merely said that accessories uh, would not be regulated and that would require separate rulemaking. I don't think they were explicit in saying that products sold without nicotine uh, would not be included because they're proposing to regulate components or parts which can be sold separately um, in different worlds. So I don't know if that's 100% true. I've got the language if that would help, uh, if you want me to read sure. it. But it says, components and parts of proposed deemed tobacco products would also be deemed to be subject to Chapter 9 and the FDA uh, Act, though, though the additional provisions of this proposed rule would not apply to components or parts that do not contain nicotine or tobacco. We have not quantified the cost of deeming tobacco components and parts without nicotine. And then it says they asked for comment. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, so they did they asked for comment on that. 
Um, so that's, that's interesting, and thank you for reading that. Um, I still think that customs will be the biggest hurdle in that because they, there's no punishment to customs if they screw up and if they, uh, they hold your product for months and months. I heard a presentation from someone at U.S. Customs essentially being gleeful over the fact that they can just screw over companies and hold products for months and months. Um, so that is going to be an issue. Uh, it's good to see. Uh, we, will, we shall see how that pans out and if the FDA changes their, uh, their perception on that as time goes on. Okay. Uh, and the last question was, uh, I don't know what the, the general consensus of thought is on uh, what uh, California right now is proposing to change the uh, age of consent, not the age of consent, but they want to make it illegal to smoke and specifically to vape uh, under 21. They want to change 18 to 21. And so I don't know what, what the uh, reaction is from vape shops and from other people on what this type of uh, new rule would be. This is being done under H.R. 24 in California. Um, and so I, 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 this is the first time I've seen this being done. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be another line of attack that, that they've been using. It, it, would, it would apply to both cigarettes and uh, e-cigarettes, but HR 24 is specifically doing it for e-cigarettes. Yeah, in, in um, Hawaii, they did pass a bill through the House and Senate to raise the age to 21. Now, thankfully, in other states, they kind of see, see Hawaii as kind of a foreign country. They don't usually set precedents for other states, but we'll see if the governor signs that. As far as California goes, the strongest point that avoids these bills from becoming law in other states where they've been proposed is that the tobacco companies or retailers ask for a fiscal note, and the fiscal note says that, well, if all these 18 to 21-year-olds stop buying cigarettes, California's going to lose X dollars of revenue every year. And that usually shuts down discussions, especially in states with poor fiscal conditions. However, uh, the biggest threat in California are the fact that both Leno's bill and Hill's bill in the Senate would define e-cigarettes as tobacco products for youth access purposes. The problem with that is that there was just a news article that ran, and I just got a copy perhaps from the Sacramento Bee. Uh, in 2016, the ANTI's plan on running another ballot initiative to uh, raise the tax on cigarettes and tobacco products. And so if e-cigarettes are made tobacco products this year by the California legislature, any, they won't have to mention e-cigarettes in the ballot language. I think the ants recognize that since they lost by like 1% a couple of years ago uh, when trying to do that, that if they actually have to write on the ballot language, this would raise the tax on cigarettes, tobacco products, and e-cigarettes, that that would probably lose them a few percentage points of the vote. But if they get e-cigarettes redefined to be tobacco, well, they don't have to mention e-cigarettes. So that's the biggest threat, the fact that we should have e-cigarettes taxed at a ridiculously high rate by a voting population that is not even aware that e-cigarettes are included in the, uh, in the ballot initiative. Right. I mean, in, in California, that they're doing it with three different bills. Uh, a, a 140 uh, uh, changes the definition, 151 adds the tax to tobacco, and it also uh, 
uh, it, it does it that way, uh, and it changes the age. Uh, and, and SB 24 was just recently amended. It's going after uh, an independent definition of electronic cigarettes, but it still is going to change the date uh, it, it, to make it uh, only over 21. And, and they have quantified the, the cost to this already. It's going to be uh, $68 million per year uh, for the first year, and of that, $17 million will come out of the general fund. Uh, then they anticipate it's going to go up higher, uh, you know, to $100 million in the subse- uh, subsequent years. But, they, I mean, this is what they're moving forward. Uh, they, are, they do have it, the, the hit to the, uh, the budget already in, in their analysis. So this is the first time I've seen a, a really uh, a big state, or actually really, I haven't seen uh, Hawaii, but that they're really going after the age, too. And I don't know if they're going to back that off as, as a bargaining chip or not, but uh, that's what's currently... Yeah, we'll uh, see. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of routes to kill something like that. Um, I don't think that the tax increase, the good news is that California, uh, the reason why cigarettes are only taxed at, I don't know, a dollar a pack, despite it being California, is that you, if you live in California, you guys passed a voter initiative, maybe 1990-ish, saying that to raise taxes, I believe you need two-thirds of the vote in both the House and the Senate. And that's a huge hurdle to overcome when Republicans probably control one-third of the House and Senate, maybe a little less thing on the year. Um, and so I would be shocked, if, the, especially with the prospect of the ballot initiative, which makes legislators say, I, I don't need to take that tough vote. I'll just let them have, have it on the ballot and let the people decide. So I see that. I don't see the tax bill in the Senate as a giant threat. I see, a, I see it as a definite threat of those Senate bills once they move out of the Senate. Uh, we need to kill it probably in the Assembly Government Operations Committee. And that's what I'm hopeful that this spot of folks uh, will really generate, uh, really get the vape stores, including those vape stores that aren't even Savada members, to generate tens of phone calls every day to members from, uh, from constituents in or around their districts. Ed, those were really, really great questions. I'm sure you have at least uh, a couple more, but I want to get to one more caller and let Greg go before he uh, runs out of breath. So thanks for your questions, Ed. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Uh, Caller in the 651 area code. You're on the air with Greg Conley. Hey, Russ and Greg. This is Alex Carlson out there in Minnesota. Say, I just had one quick question. I was just wondering if uh, there was any positive that, that was expected by Safada by having Mitch Seller out there, and if there, if there was, if that was accomplished, I'll oh, hang up and listen. Thanks. Um, I think Safada was just excited to have Mitch Seller come. If I put on a conference and Mitch Seller came, uh, I, I would certainly be happy. I would think that it sends uh, some legitimacy to the organization, and I'm sure people who. Uh, are kind of on the peripheral of this. Maybe they are aware of the FDA rights, but not completely aware um, that that will impress them and might urge them to join Tafata. Uh, but nobody who I would consider uh, extremely intelligent who's here, and there were a lot of extremely intelligent people at this conference, I don't think any of them came out feeling terribly optimistic following Zeller's speech. Good question, Alex. And um, yeah, not. Yeah, that's kind of what I expected you to say. 
Well, hey, listen, Greg, thanks for uh, taking the time out of your workout schedule to come on the air to talk about all this stuff. Anything uh, anything you want to close with? Uh, we got some uh, legislation coming up in various states. Uh, Vermont, we're going to have uh, the e-cig tax that's already passed the House, moved to the Senate. Thankfully, the governor came out against it. If you're one of three vapors in Vermont, please call your senator. Um, in D.C. on Friday, Washington, D.C., I'll be testifying against a 70% of wholesale tax on e-cigarettes that I'm hopeful will end up removed. And uh, there's plenty of other stuff coming up, but go to Kassaw.org for all that. And, of course, go like the American Vaping Association on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Uh, one last thing. Got a kind of interesting question here. There was a, a significant amount of um, organization and fundraising that had to be done to get the AVA off the ground, and that was successful, and your efforts have been successful. Um, so as far as I know, that was that activity was the funding for the organization, which of, of course includes you and your salary for year one. Are you funded for year two? Well, we have, we have money that comes in monthly, and so I'm still actively fundraising. Uh, we have cut our budget a little bit. We don't have the same PR firm that we did before, and um, we're working with the resources that we have, and those resources allow me to put out press releases, to fly to places, to, to guide people, and also, uh, just because it allows me to make some money, lets me continue to do a lot of the volunteer efforts that I do outside of ABA, like assisting Safada with some of their state chapters and vetting lobbyists and helping to get vendors organized. And um, thankfully, kind of people, some people in the industry know who I am, and they recognize kind of me as a neutral third party that has no skin in the game. And so that's been helpful to me, and certainly without ABA. I don't know if I'd be doing this full time or even at all. Okay. It's an ongoing effort then. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on the air, Greg. Love what you do. No problem. There he goes, everybody. President of the American Vaping yeah. Association, Gregory, uh, Greg Connolly. Esquire, is that what you say? When someone's a lawyer? One of the good ones. So... I got some civil asset forfeiture stuff, but before that, uh, everything's been so serious to this point. Let's do something just completely stupid. How about that? There are websites that have cam girls, right? Where you can go and you can watch a, a woman talk to you, a woman put on a show with various devices, a woman get, get naked. They, they have these websites, right? So usually the way they work is, you know, there's a bunch of guys, I guess, sitting at home doing God knows what with their pants around their ankles, while a girl does God knows what with hers around hers, or not there at all. Now, usually, the girls won't really do anything unless the guys are actually giving money, making donations. So they got a site, you're a dude, you give the site some money, they give you these coins, and they give the girls the coins, and the, they can exchange the coins. So it's a, it's a pay-for-play kind of thing. But what happens 
if a girl isn't successful in convincing her audience to donate, sometimes they get mad. And that's what happens here. And for those of you listening with headphones, I'm going to try to control the audio as best as I can. But look out. This is a girl transforming into a dragon live on the internet. Hold on to your eardrums. And nothing's happening. Oh, that's why nothing's happening. Wrong pot. Sorry. Russ fail. Here, let's try that again. Game over. Nobody wanted to spend money on me. All night long. Game over. I would never fuck you. I would never fuck any man. Yeah? You're getting banned, motherfucker. You're not playing the game. There, you went. You fucking went. You fucking just forced another single mother who's working hard for the living for the last fucking 14 years! There's so many confusing things about uh, that internet freakout. If she would never fuck any man, how could she be a single mother? How does that work exactly? Huh. There was some good news uh, just very recently, like a month ago, maybe a couple months ago. The uh, Department of Justice and the IRS both came out and they said, we're not going to seize citizens' assets anymore. There will be no more fe uh, civil asset forfeiture on the federal level. It's still going, it's still running rampant in states, but at least the feds said that they're not going to do it, right? If you're not familiar with this practice, basically what it is is it lets the government seize your funds for really any reason. I mean, this could be, you driving home from a casino and you had a big win. You happen to have 20 grand in the car. All they have to say is that we suspect that this money is for drugs or for terrorism or for, you know, they, they could really make up anything and they can seize it from you. 
They don't have to charge you with a crime. You don't even have to be suspected of committing a crime. And in most of these cases, there is no act. There is no arrest. There is no allegation um, that a crime has been committed, just that they are suspicious that this is being used for drugs or terrorism. Then the interesting thing at that point is that to get your money back, you're not the defendant. The defendant is the cash or the property. And it's extremely expensive and extremely time-consuming to get your money back. You have to, unlike in a court of law where you were a defendant accused of a crime, in that case, the prosecutor has to prove that you are guilty. In civil asset forfeiture, you have to prove that your cash is innocent. The onus of proof is on you. Now, if you want to fight it, you can get it back. Problem is, a lot of times they seize like 10 grand, you're going to spend seven grand getting it back. So what if they, they what if they seize five grand? You're going to be, you're going to be in the hole another two grand or you'll be in the, you'll maybe get three back. You see what I'm talking about? It's, it's expensive. It's time consuming. A lot of people don't even bother. So here's an example, uh, a particularly egregious one where now this guy was a, uh, a, de a decorated veteran from Iraq. He had a gun store, I believe in Florida, somewhere down south. Um, and they seized, now he. Th this wasn't one of those cases where you're driving back from the casino and you got cash in your car. He had money in the bank. He had a million dollars in the bank. And they seized it. How? Well, he wasn't breaking any rules. What he was doing was he was putting in the money a few thousand dollars at a time. This is common practice for a business. If you have at the end of your business day, three or four or six or $7,000 and you don't want to keep it in the store, well, you bring it to the bank. And if that's what you're taking in a day, that's probably what you're putting in the bank a day. Maybe you're a, a business where you've got, you know, six, $7,000 at the end of a week. Well, that's what you're going to do at the end of a week. That's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the bank. You're going to put, you're going to put that money in the bank. You don't want to keep it in the store. You want to keep it in the bank. And that's what he was doing. He didn't even know that this practice was uh, structuring, I think is what they call it. He didn't even know it existed. He was just doing business normally. He was declaring everything on his taxes. They never, uh, they never said that they suspected him of committing a crime. They just said, this is structuring. Therefore, we're going to take all your money. So here's what happened. They're the Ooh, worst. If you thought you could not hate the IRS any more than you already do, brace yourself for this one. The IRS is seizing the bank accounts of small businesses, forcing business owners who have done nothing wrong to do battle with the tax agency. One of the business owners is Andrew Clyde, an Iraq War veteran. He opened a small firearm store in Georgia. Clyde says he was wrongly targeted by the IRS because of a murky federal program. The program allows the IRS to seize assets they suspect could be tied to criminal activity, even without actual criminal activity. And now Clyde taking his case to Capitol Hill. I did not serve three combat tours in Iraq, only to come home and be extorted by my government's use of civil forfeiture laws. But that is what I feel they have done to me, and I need you to stop it from happening to anyone else. And business owner, Navy veteran, Andrew Clyde joins us. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Greta. How are you? I'm very well. So tell me what happened. You were running your business and what happened? 
I was running my business and um, on uh, uh, April the 12th, 2013, two IRS agents showed up and, uh, with a seizure warrant and took $940,313 from, from uh, my company's bank account. And Had you um, ever they told me that, go ahead. I'm sorry, they told you what? And they told me I was, um, that I had been structuring. All right, and by structuring, what they mean is that they're the IRS, uh, the, the, the laws are such that um, if you deposit more than $10,000 in the bank, that the, the banks are obliged to notify the federal government. But structuring is, that, for instance, if you keep putting 9000 in to beat the $10,000 requirement, right? Yeah, that's what they said. That's correct. I had no idea what it even was. Okay, so tell me, what were you doing? Uh, I, we were just depositing less than $10,000 in the bank on a regular basis. As a small business, you want to manage risk, you know, and, and any time that uh, you send cash out of the store to deposit, uh, you know, that's risk. And so had you ever heard from the IRS before that? They just suddenly showed up and seized your $940,000? That is correct. I never heard from the IRS before. All right, so then what happened? After they seized the money, what did you do? That's a lot of cash to have uh, seized by the IRS. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of cash to be seized. It was most everything we had in that bank account. Um, they said, call my attorney and have him talk to the assistant United States attorney. And, and uh, so we had a conference about six days later uh, between my attorney, my accountant, uh, the IRS agents, and the assistant United States attorney. And we showed them this was uh, legitimate money, you know, properly earned, properly reported, um, and we wanted it back. And uh, they said, no, uh, we're not going to give it back. Uh, they came uh, about three weeks later with an offer to, um, to uh, uh, give me back 600000 of it if I would forfeit $325,000 to the uh, federal government. And I said, no, absolutely not. So where does it stand now? You, of course, let me understand, you've never been charged with any crime, right? That, that there's no crime involved with this. That is correct. There's no crime involved with this. In fact, in, in that offer, um, they specifically noted that, um, um, that I had not been accused of a crime, I had not been charged with any crime, and that they noted that the money was clean, um, and that it was appropriately handled, that all taxes were paid. Um, they noted that in the offer. Did did they return $940,000? No, ma'am, they did not. Um, we went to a, a, a hearing three and a half months later where um, a judge uh, forced the IRS to return uh, $440,000 of it and then gave me an expedited trial. We never actually went to trial. Um, it was my, um, my tactical retreat, if you will, so I could fight another day. And I ended up forfeiting $50,000 to, um, uh, to the IRS. and, and um, and they gave me the 450000 back. One other quick question. How much you pay in legal fees? <laughs> Everything, the forfeiture and the legal fees cost me $149,000, Greta. That's disgraceful. Anyway, Andrew, thank you. And uh, maybe the IRS won't apologize directly to you, but I will. Thank you, sir. So, I mean, his only way out, even, even when it's so clear that... that, that Nothing wrong, no wrongdoing. He's doing his taxes right. Even after all that, they still wanted that pound of flesh. They still f said, we'll give you a settlement, but give us 50 grand. For what? Who knows? And he probably just realized, 
50 grand is probably going to save me more in legal funds than, you know, fighting it and getting the full sum back. So it wasn't a bad decision by, by him, but it's, it's outright extortion. Now this was before, this was earlier this year. This was in January before the, uh, Department of Justice and the IRS said, okay, we're going to stop doing this because the outcry uh, was, was, was pretty large and rightly so. But then this happened last week. And this, this is heartbreaking. They told me that I was, uh, had been structuring. The you know, before I said, the, 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 just the background on this guy and his business. Now this guy, he runs a convenience store, right? He sells beer and cigarettes and he makes some sandwiches and sells, you know, beef jerky and potato chips. Small store, real small store. Over 13 years, he had saved $107,000. And this is what they did to him. And this was this week. They told me that I was, uh, had been structuring deposits and therefore they had seized all my assets. Uh, they seized a little over $100,000 out of the, uh, my business account here. Uh, which was all that was in there. Took 13 years to get it and less than 13 seconds, I guess, to take it away. Lyndon McClellan is a convenience store owner in rural North Carolina and the latest in a string of small business owners targeted for civil forfeiture under the structuring laws. These laws were intended to apply to criminals seeking to evade bank reporting requirements, but they're increasingly applied to people whose only supposed offense is doing business in cash. This is all I've ever done. I was raised in the store business. Uh, I'm here 12, 13 hours a day, seven days a week. To make this kind of money, selling soft drinks, cigarettes, and hot dogs, somebody's got to work, okay? It wasn't just handed to us. It was taken from us, but it wasn't handed to us. Civil forfeiture allowed the government to take Lyndon's money without convicting or even charging him with a crime. And now those same civil forfeiture laws I mean, Lyndon has to fight the government in order to get his money back. Well, you know, I thought, well, do, do you quit now? Do you, do you try to keep struggling and go on? And I chose to, to try to keep going and, and move forward with my business. It's hard to overcome this kind of loss in today's business world. This wasn't supposed to happen. After similar cases came to light at the end of 2014, the government changed its policies to bar seizures in these kinds of cases. But federal officials in the field are not respecting the IRS policy change. The IRS says this is wrong, and all I want is the government to follow the new rules in this case. Nobody's above the law, and, and not even the federal government. If they're wrong, they're wrong. And I feel like this is wrong. That's why I'm asking for help in trying to uh, recover my money, and anybody else that's had this to happen to them needs to do the same thing. I mean, it's not right. You see, this is, the thing about this is, this isn't like one of those bad cop stories that I cover where, you know, there's one lunatic who shoots somebody for no good reason. There are dozens of people that have to be organized together to make a raid like this happen. This is crossing dozens of desks and then agents have to go out into a field. So there's there's literally dozens and dozens of people who are looking at this guy, seeing as this guy's fucking America. I mean, listen, he's selling he's, he's selling beer and sandwiches for Christ's sakes. He's paying his taxes. He's doing nothing wrong. And they're looking at this, dozens of people, 
And they decide that this is a good idea to do to this man. I mean, it's, it's, it's just gross malfeasance, disgusting, taking away his whole life for doing nothing wrong. How else could this guy, this, you know, this guy's got a small, a small little shop. This is the only way he could possibly put money in the bank. He's not, he's not making more than 10,000. He's not pulling in more than $10,000 a week. What else would he do? Put it in his mattress and then put, and then put it in the bank at the end of the year. I mean, what other options does he have? Well, you know, putting money in a mattress probably isn't a great idea. Um, gold bullion is perhaps an option with a safety deposit box, but they can get into those too. Honestly, probably the safest place, you know, that, that small businesses want to really start looking into to put their money where the government can't get it is the blockchain. The last story I want to share with you tonight, and then we'll move into after hours, is uh, there was a guy who uh, he was married. He had to move to another location, and then he got a phone call from his wife that um, she said she wasn't coming, or at least not yet, and he was upset. And he got drunk, and a friend of his... Uh, and he was and he was angry. Now he, this was all in the privacy of his own home. He never threatened anyone. No one was with him. He was just some dude who was pissed off, and he got fucking wasted, but never left his house. Privacy of his own home. But his friend, who had been speaking to him on the phone, he was concerned about him. So he called the police. He said, "I'm really concerned about my friend. Can you go check on him?" Boy. I'm sure his friend, if he really is a friend, um, regrets that very, very much because this man certainly does. What the police did is they took that phone call and they got a warrant from a judge and said, we need a search warrant for the home because this guy is intoxicated and he might have hostages. Now, nobody suggested that. They got one phone call from this guy, from his friend. He never mentioned anything about hostages. You said, my friend's drunk. I'm worried about him. Oh, shit. Where the hell is my audio for this? God damn it. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. Bear with me. Maybe it's... Shit. You know what I might have to do? I know I pulled the audio for this, too. What I might have to do is just play it off the website, which of course means there will likely be 15 minutes, 15 seconds of uh, some sort of an advertisement. Uh, yeah, here we go. Well, I'm not inclined to give Geico a free advertisement. So in the meantime, what should I say? I've got a, a 20 seconds to kill here. Hmm. Uh, there was this guy who uh, sucked too many dicks at a party, and then he passed out. And then his friends uh, drew a bunch of beer cans on his face. Okay, I've covered the time. Here we go. 
And now for a Fox 26 exclusive, we are reporting tonight troubling allegations of police and prosecutorial misconduct in Fort Bend County. Fox 26's Greg Grugan is here with truly what's really a disturbing story, Greg. That's right, Don. Those charges come from an innocent man who says he's been devastated emotionally, physically and financially by cops he believes abuse their power and then with the aid of prosecutors attempted to cover their tracks. These cops are out of control. They, they are ruining good people's lives. I, I'm a good man. I've done everything I can to, 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 to show that as a father, as a citizen, as a worker. And Chad Chadwick has the spotless record to fully back that claim. But on the night of September 27th, 2011, it did him no good at all. It started when a friend concerned for Chadwick's emotional well-being called Missouri City Police to Chad's Siena apartment where he'd been distraught, drinking, and unknown to anyone, had gone to sleep in the bathtub. A SWAT team was summoned. They told a judge I had hostages. They lied to a judge and told him I had hostages in my apartment, therefore they need to enter. Chadwick owned a single shotgun, and while he had threatened no one, not even himself, SWAT kicked in his door, launched a stun grenade into the bathroom, and stormed in, according to Chadwick, without announcing their identity. So while I had my hands up naked in the shower, they shot me with a 40 millimeter uh, non-lethal round. Followed by a second stun grenade. Uh, I turned away, the explosion went off. Uh, I opened my eyes, the lights are out, and here comes a shield uh, with four or five guys behind it, pinned me against the wall and proceeded to beat the crap out of me. That's when officers shot the unarmed Chadwick in the back of the head with a taser at point blank range. But they claimed that I drew down with a shampoo bottle, an Axe body wash bottle. And it wasn't over. They grabbed me by the one arm that was out of the, out of the shower and then grabbed me by my testicles and pulled me out, slammed me on my face on the floor and proceeded to beat me more. Chad Chadwick, who hadn't broken a single law when SWAT burst through his door, was taken to the Fort Bend County Jail with a fractured nose, bruised ribs, and what's proven to be permanent hearing loss. He was held in an isolation cell for two full days. Instead of them apologizing to this man and, see, and saying, let us see what we can do to help you make you whole again, they concocted criminal charges against him. At one, one after, after another, another after another after another. Fort Bend County District Attorney John Healy sought to indict Chadwick on two felony counts of assaulting a police officer. But a grand jury said no law was broken. It could have stopped there. But Healy's prosecutors tried misdemeanor charges of resisting arrest, calling more than a dozen officers to testify. But again, the charges were dropped. A month ago, three years after the SWAT raid, a jury found Chad Chadwick not guilty of interfering with police. They tried to make me a convict, and I did. It broke me. It financially bankrupted me. Uh, I used my, my life savings, um, not to mention I lost my kids. This type of police abuse and excessive use of force and concoction of criminal charges against innocent people is not just happening to black people, it's happening to white people too. For Chadwick, some of the damage will never be repaired. And all I could think about was, what are my daughters gonna think? 
My goal in life is to be a father that my kids are proud of. That's it. The SWAT team that took Chadwick into custody and testified against him was comprised of officers from Missouri City, Stafford, Sugarland, and the Fort Bend County Sheriff's Department. Today, Fort Bend County District Attorney John Healy declined to comment on camera, but did say he stands by his decision to prosecute Chadwick, despite the multiple no bills and not guilty verdict. Asked how much the whole case cost taxpayers, Healy said he wasn't keeping a tally. Done. Well, it's not his money. It's not so, his money. The, what was the justification again for going into the house or the apartment when the guy's in his bathtub? They didn't know he was in the bathtub, they claim. They said in the warrant that he might have hostages. Who said he might have hostages? No one. No one. Mm -hmm. Even the friend that called. Hmm. Tough situation. All right, Greg, thank you. So here's the kicker. Now, you might think, this guy's got a slam dunk lawsuit. At least, you know, guy's bankrupt and everything now. He can never get his hearing back. The psychological trauma of going through that, I can't even imagine. But at the end of the day, he broke no laws. They brought up all these charges. Every jury declined to convict him, in fact, and exonerated him. Oh, nothing, right? So he's got a slam, a slam dunk lawsuit, right? At least he can maybe be made whole, at least financially again. But no. The reason why... The prosecutor kept bringing up one charge and then another and then another, staggering them out over time was for a very deliberate reason, and it worked. They did it so that while these cases were pending and then they'd bring up another and another and another, again, this incident was 2011, that they would stretch it out long enough so that the statute of limitations would expire on him bringing up a civil suit. And that's exactly what happened. He filed anyway after his latest acquittal, but it was too late. And a federal judge threw it out and said he will not be able to sue the city and the police department because the statute of limitations has run out. It's on appeal. That will take years. He's done. He's ruined. And it was a concerted effort. You know, maybe, the, you know, we got this problem with the cops, you know, SWAT teams raiding people who are innocent and happens. Maybe you could blame their superiors, their training, the culture. But the, the prosecutor? He's, he's a malicious demon. Purposely bankrupting the guy and stretching it out to the point where we'd have no legal recourse because of statute of limitations. It's just, just about the worst thing I've ever heard, really. I had somebody write me, uh, Benjamin wrote me, because I've, I've talked about how these SWAT raids sometimes do come on innocent people who have committed no crime. In this case, this guy, because his friend was concerned about him, in some cases, just because they got the wrong address, Said Russ, listening to the replay of your show in the car, a little less than a year ago, my 78-year-old grandmother, who lives in a one-room studio apartment in Waukesha, Wisconsin, 
called me and said, the SWAT team just raided my apartment. My stomach flipped. She said she was asleep and woke up to find nine cops in full riot gear standing over her. They had machine guns and a battering ram. She never locks the door, so they didn't need to smash it down and sleeps like the dead, thank God. They were there to serve a warrant for the possession and distribution of child pornography. My grandmother is a 78-year-old woman. I flew over there, and she showed me the warrant. It was in her name and her address. She said they ushered her out of her apartment, rifled through everything, hooked up a small box to her computer, scanned it, and they said that they found nothing, and they left. No explanation, nothing. She shares her wireless connection with her neighbor in the apartment across the hall. I assumed it was her boyfriend. They scanned his computer, nothing. I'm an IT guy, and I know that she clicks on anything, and I'm sure her computer was infected and used in a botnet. That didn't surprise me, but what horrified me was that they were serving a warrant for something that had apparently happened two months ago earlier, and they knew that she was a fucking 78-year-old woman who can barely walk and lives in a tiny apartment with two cats, and they sent the fucking SWAT team. If she didn't sleep so heavily, if it wasn't a studio apartment that a door that the door opens directly into the better living room, she could have easily thought that there was someone breaking in. If she had been scared and moved too fast, they would have shot her. I was furious. No follow-up. No letter of apology. I got a letter when I was a convicted when I was a victim of a crime. She got nothing. Luckily, she didn't get a fucking bullet. I wanted to go raise holy hell, but it's a small town, and I was worried about re retribution and retaliation. I wonder how much the ridiculous raid cost. Thank God it was her and not me. I sleep with a gun on the nightstand. I would have been dead. Good show tonight. Benjamin.